Welcome back to Parashat Shemini. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman, and we are uh, in the thick of it. We're talking about Jews, Gentiles, pigs and cats and dogs and ducks and lambs and geese and every other kind of animal that uh, we can think of. What we're attempting to do is to um, unlock the meanings of some difficult passages that show up in the New Testament, particularly the book of Mark chapter 7, and now we just got through looking at Acts chapter 10. Um, all of this is based on our foundational understanding or misunderstanding of Leviticus chapter 11, which is Parashat Shemini, the Torah portion. So, we are now on page 16 of the written notes under the section entitled Paul's Persuasion. Now let's turn to Paul, the mystery man, the apostle to the Gentiles. Let's see what Paul has to say about Leviticus chapter 11 and whether or not the Torah can still be relied upon to define what is food and what is not food. Okay? This next section is entitled Paul's Persuasion. Um, an off-sided passage in Romans warrants our attention. Let's just go straight to Romans 14, verse 14 through 17. Quote, I know, that is, I have been persuaded by the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, that nothing is unclean in itself, but if a person considers something unclean, then for him it is unclean. And if your brother is being upset by the food you eat, then your life is no longer one of love. Do not, by your eating habits, destroy someone for whom the Messiah died. Do not let what you know to be good be spoken of as bad, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, shalom, and joy in the Ruach HaKodesh. End quote. Now, if you're listening to this commentary and you've just joined us and you have not listened to the section on Acts chapter 10, you're probably going to be confused over my use of the Greek words. I highly recommend that you either print out the written commentary and read the section under Acts chapter 10, Peter's vision, or listen to, I believe it's part D of the commentary where I deal with that particular um, passage. But again, as with the passage in Acts here in Romans, a knowledge of the social setting, as well as the original Greek words, will unlock the secrets to a proper understanding um, of this passage. All right? uh, let's, let me just make sure... We've got the right Greek words there. There we go. Okay. Firstly, as I look here, I have what I in front of me, um, the complete word study New Testament, uh, Spiros Zodiades, which is actually a study Bible that contains the original Greek words, uh, the Greek numbers, I should say, the uh, Strong's numbers, and then the Greek uh, dictionary and lexicons in the back. So I can look them up just in case I made a, um, an error in my commentary. As we examine Romans chapter 14 here, firstly, the Greek word akathartos is not found in this passage at all. Akathartos, if you remember, conveys that which is intrinsically unclean. Okay? Shaul is not discussing the issue of pork versus lamb. When he says, I've been persuaded that nothing is unclean in and of itself. All right? um, he's not talking about lamb versus pork, or, or pork versus beef, or something like that. Because pork is intrinsically unclean, whereas lamb is not intrinsically unclean. Um, rather, lamb can become koinos, or common, by uh, ritual defilement. The word Shaul opts for when confessing that, nothing, that quote, nothing is unclean in of itself. All right? And there's a Greek phrase there that I, that I can't read. I apologize. I can't read the entire Greek. Um, but I did... I did uh, copy it there for you in the commentary. But I underlined the Greek word for the phrase unclean. Have you guessed what it is? If it's not akathartos, what do you think it is? Well, you guessed it. It's koinos. That's right. 
It's a koinos issue. Shaul is discussing matters of biblically defined food being declared by one man as, quote, okay to consume, end quote, versus another man declaring it, quote, not okay to consume, end quote. That's the big difference between koinos and akathartos. Akathartos is basically intrinsically uh, unclean uh, animals that have been made that way by God's design. They've been created that way. And therefore, the biblical authority rests in the Word of God as to the definition of what is akathartos and what is not akathartos. Comparatively, koinos is a man-made declaration which is which get gains its authority from what God defines, but but koinos generally um, confines itself to man-made um, prohibitions or man-made declarations or man-made um, sensitivities. You know, it's like it's it's the old saying. For instance, like what if I had you know one man's trash is another man's treasure or something like that. Um, let's suppose me and my friend, a good friend of mine, are walking along the road and I look down and I see. A um, let's see what what I, what what might I see that that I could pick up? Um, let's say I see an apple laying on the ground. Okay, it's harmless. It's an apple, and and you know let's say it rained the night before, so the apple has like some dirt on it. Now, if I'm hungry, I might. I'm not saying I would do this definitely, but I might, as an example, reach down, pick up the apple right in front of my friend, take um, some excess from my shirt, wipe the apple off and proceed to eat the apple. At the same time, my friend next to me might look at me and go, Ooh, that's gross. What are you eating that for? It's dirty. And I would say, No, no, I wiped it off on my shirt. Do you understand my illusion here? The apple, although it's permitted biblically to eat apples, okay, there's no question there, the apple is not akathartos because it is not declared by God as unclean in any shape of uh, of the stretch of the imagination given the example that I'm using. However, my friend has declared the apple koinos because of the dirt on it. I, however, by comparison, by wiping it off, have declared the apple um, katharidzo, cleansed. Do you see the difference now between koinos and akathartos? Koinos is something that's more akin to personal preference, whereas akathartos has its roots in what the Bible and what God have declared about such an item. So, in this passage here in Romans 14, 14, Paul does not use the word akathartos when he says that I have been persuaded that nothing, that is no food, is unclean in and of itself. What he's referring to is koinos issues. Alright? His conclusion to this passage is found in, in or near the final verses um, that I quoted part of them here, but I just want to read the rest of them. Alright? Quote, and I'm going to read verses 17 through the end there, 23, well, nearly the end of the chapter, 17 through 23, which is the greater context, concerning koinos issues, right? Where we have one man's opinion against another man's opinion, where the word of God is not in question, but rather it's it's man versus man. It's, a, it's he said, she said, alright? Here's what Paul says, quote, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, shalom, and joy in the Ruach HaKodesh. Anyone who serves the Messiah in his fashion both pleases God and wins the approval of other people. So then, let us pursue the things that make for shalom and mutual upbuilding. Don't tear down God's work for the sake 
uh, excuse me, for the sake of food. True enough, all all things are clean, but is it, but it is wrong for anybody by his eating to cause someone to fall away. What is good is not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The belief you hold about such things keep between yourself and God. Happy the person who is free of self-condemnation when he approves of something. But the doubter comes under condemnation if he eats because his action is not based on trust and anything not based on trust is a sin. End quote. I really shouldn't even have to comment on what Paul is teaching here. The word I underlined above in verse 20 where it says, True enough, all things are clean. This is the Greek word katharos, and it's defined as clean, pure, blameless, or innocent, according to uh, Thayer's and Smith's Bible Dictionary, katharos. Again, Shaul is not teaching us that the dietary list of Leviticus 11 has been discarded. He doesn't even entertain the notion of akathartos. Okay? He does not bring that word into this passage. He's not talking about food or animals, I should say, that are defined by the Torah as biblically prohibited. He's not talking about pork. Alright? It's not pork versus lamb. In fact, Shaul is really reiterating what his, to- what, what his teacher, the, ma- the master, the Messiah, taught him. And what was that? What did we read in Mark chapter 7? All is clean. That is to say, all food is clean. Really, all is clean until a man comes along and declares it otherwise. That's all we're talking about. Just like the apple scenario. All right? I picked it up, I wiped it off, I declared it clean. My friend conversely looks at it and says, uh uh-uh, uh, it ain't clean by my standards until I take it home and wash it in the sink. And even then, I might apply some of that, what do they call it, that, that uh, vegetable wash fit or fitty or whatever you call it stuff. Um, so you see there's a difference between a, a koinos, uh, not akathartos. All right. Um, in the end, it is our petty differences and pride, if you think about it. it. It's really those two issues that really eventually divide us. Food simply becomes what I call the innocent medium that we fight about. It's the innocent bystander caught up in the middle. Shaul states that food should not be the point of contention. That's really what the point of the passage is all about. All right. This sounds amazingly like Shaul's instructions to Timothy in his first letter. We're going to turn to First Timothy four because here's the final passage that I'm going to talk about. That um, again, many Christians are fond of bringing out in a discussion of what is food and what is not food in their effort to prove that the Torah uh, passage in Leviticus 11 has been uprooted by the New Testament. Here's what they say: "Quote First Timothy four one through five reads: The Spirit expressly states." that in the Ahretayamim, the last days, some people will apostatize um, from the faith by paying attention to deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come from the hypocrisy of liars whose own consciences have been burned as if with a red-hot branding iron. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods which God created to be eaten with thanksgiving by those who have come to trust and to know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing received with thanksgiving needs to be rejected, because the word of God and prayer make it holy. End quote. Again, foolish men 
within the Torah communities are found to be pushing their foolish agendas on everyone around them. That would include both then as well as today. And these foolish men judge those who don't hold the same opinions as them. God forbid that we the Messianics are those foolish men. God forbid that we the, the Torah community fall into the description of the foolish men of this passage. And yet, as we read the passage, are we to imagine that Shaul's solution to simply uh, Shaul's solution um, is to simply yield to those apostates and accept anything and everything under the guise of ecumenism and love? Is that what Paul's saying? Come on, you Jews, give up the dietary restrictions. Just have a ham sandwich. Yuck it up with your Christian brothers. After all, God loves us all. God receives us all, and everything received with thanksgiving needs to be received and not rejected because the word of God and prayer make it holy. So just put away your differences. Let's all have a ham sandwich. Is that what Paul is teaching? Well, if that's the logic that we are espousing to or subscribing to, then watch how it's going to turn around and bite us, okay, in my next example in my commentary. If that's how the passage here in Timothy is to be understood, are we, genuine followers of Yeshua, both Jew and Gentile, to now accept that, for instance, homosexuality is okay? How about adultery and fornication? All right, Are we to say, well, concerning homosexuality, adultery, fornication, lying, stealing, you know, everything created by God is good, and nothing received with thanksgiving needs to be rejected, including gluttony and drunkenness, because the word of God and prayer make these things holy, why should we look down on people and their sensitivities? Is that how we're to understand this passage? If you have answered a resounding no to these questions, because the word of God will not allow you to answer otherwise, then you must follow through with your hermeneutic principle and apply the same answer to the question of whether or not everything is now to be considered food and ostensibly received with prayer and thanksgiving. The passage is not suggesting a situation where Jewish Christians are telling Gentile Christians that pork and shellfish are forbidden with the Gentile Christians arguing that pork and shellfish are now okay in Jesus. That's not what Paul's arguing here in this passage. Shaul's definition of food is the very same definition that his master held to. And where does that definition find its authority? Right in Leviticus chapter 11 and the Deuteronomy passage. So, summing up both the Romans passages, like in Romans 14, and this passage here in Timothy, let's see if we can understand. Shaul is not suggesting what I call a vote based righteousness. You know what I mean? Let's take a vote. What's food? What's not? Majority vote wins. Okay, new vote. What is righteousness? Majority vote wins. That's not what Paul's suggesting here, okay? Man cannot vote on which days we are to worship, in other words, Romans 14, 5, and 6, any more than he can vote on what defines marital fidelity or what is food. You see? The same logic has to be applied across the board. Man does not get to vote when it comes to God's um, declarations of righteousness, whether it be the days we worship on, the way we were, are to relate to one another, or food. The passages in question from Shaul cannot be saying that we should apply one standard of righteousness to worship days, in other words, let everyone be convinced in his own mind, and marital relations, while simultaneously applying a different standard of righteousness to food. 
You see, we can't have it both ways. We cannot teach in the church that when it comes to the Sabbath days, each man should be fully convinced. And when it comes to sexual um, orientation, well, that's just an alternate lifestyle. And then at the same time say, well, food, well, you know, that's just, um, that's just your opinion versus my opinion either. We have to have one standard across the board. Either God's complete word is our standard of righteous living, or it is not. We either accept it all, or we chuck it all. Picking and choosing has never been the allowable vote. And with that, let's turn to the final section of my commentary, entitled, Penalties and Remedies. Bottom of page 18. What are we to make of the data we have now encountered concerning clean and unclean food? Because for many of you, this has been overwhelming. Someone may ask, Ariel, what was the penalty for coming into contact with that which was unclean anyway? What was the penalty for ingesting unclean food? What's the penalty? What's the big deal anyway, they might ask. Actually, I get that question quite often. The Torah seems to indicate that uncleanness can be identified on at least two basic levels, all right? Firstly, or in no particular order, unclean uh, describes that which is um, unclean in regards to Hashem and His holy sanctum, and also unclean in regards to your fellow man. See how that works? There, we have two relationships that we are primarily um, concerning ourselves with, and at any given time within any um, well within the body of Christ, we must concern ourselves with our relationship to God, and we must that that's to say the vertical, and we must concern ourselves with the relationship with our fellow man. That is to say the horizontal which I might add nicely forms a cross, right? The horizontal and the vertical? Okay. So, when it comes to um, the penalty for coming into contact with that which was unclean, which which obviously would include ingesting that which was unclean, or I should say the reverse, eating that which was unclean would obviously include coming into contact with that which was unclean. It's a call of a coma argument. The Torah prescribes at least two differing yet related types of remedy for restoration from Tame. Now, Tame is a state of unclean. Tame. Alright? To be sure, Tame is described as having the capability of being transmitted from the original carrier to other living and organic items to include humans. In other words, if a person is unclean, ritually, the Bible uses language that suggests that that ritual impurity can be transmitted to um, second and third and fourth generations. That is to say, if I'm unclean, then if I touch something organic that is unclean, uh, earthware or a, a leather object um, or another person, obviously, then I can transmit uncleanness to other people. Okay, That's what I mean by um, the, uh, transmit transmission there. The rabbis are keen to this fact as well. This, this has not been lost to their examination. In Leviticus chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, a person who is guilty of carcass defilement that is to say, contact with the carcass. Now, the Hebrew word carcass is nevela, all right? Uh, the carcass of a dead animal, um, whether that animal was a clean animal or an unclean animal, whether it was a dead pig or a dead lamb, either one of those scenarios, if you come in contact with the nevela, the uh, nevela can transmit tuma to you. You can, it, or, uh, you can become um, unclean by coming in contact with um, a dead carcass. How much more, by the way, is corpse defilement. If you come into contact with a dead human, boy, that's even worse. But that's not the topic of my uh, discussion day. Um, in Leviticus, it talks about how that if a person 
um, becomes guilty by carcass defilement, whether he's aware of it or not at the time, he must eventually bring an asham, a guilt offering, and or a chata'at, a sin offering, and or an olah, a burnt offering, to the priest. And the reason we have differing details there is because uh, it depends on the economic status of the individual and the... Um, um, the um, declaration of the priest itself as to what the stage of uncleanness is compared to, um, you know, was it an animal? Was it a corpse? Was it that you just sat on a leather seat that a menstruating woman just sat in? Or things like that. Um, there are different degrees of tumah, different degrees of, of tameh, of unclean, uh, that the Bible describes. And I'm trying to um, just kind of um, distill them into this final paragraph here for you in my commentary without overwhelming us, but there's a lot more that can be said. At any rate, my point is that um, a sacrifice is prescribed um, so that uh, Hashem will clear him of guilt incurred were he to approach the holy sanctum. That's one level of prescription and remedy for the state of unclean. Now, that takes care of our relationship between God and ourselves. Let's now turn in similar fashion to the discussion of the um, the uh, penalty or the solution or the remedy concerning uh, uncleanness between our fellow men. Are, are we to do the same thing? Well, the Torah doesn't say so. In similar fashion, an individual who becomes defiled with a carcass, uh, eating its flesh, implying touching a carcass, that is to say, let's say I eat meat from a, an otherwise biblically um, um, permitted animal, a bovine or, or, a, sh uh, or you know, a chicken or, or something like that, a sheep or cow. And let's say I, eat the, uh, I, 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 I happen upon a carcass and I'm hungry and I eat the, the flesh from that animal. Um, but I don't plan on visiting the Holy Sanctum. Okay, let's say I don't plan on going to visit uh, the tabernacle so that I can converse with God or have a shlamim, a meal with God or anything. Um, what is the remedy for me? Okay, well... In the interim, until I get to the tabernacle, again, let's say I'm not immediately going to go to the tabernacle. In the interim, the Torah says that I am merely to wash my clothes, bathe myself in water, and remain unclean until evening. And that's exactly what it says in Leviticus 17, 15, and 16, where it talks about a person eating that food. All right. To be sure, Leviticus 11, 24 through 43 utilizes the same language. The, the, this is our Torah portion, when describing both humans and foodstuffs that become contaminated by contact with death. Okay, His impurity is described as having the ability to be transmitted to others in the community. Thus, the nature of his confinement and the prescription commanded that I bathe myself, wash my clothes, and remain clean until evening. It has itself. It concerns itself mostly with people that are that I'm going to encounter in the community, as as compared to my contact with the holy sanctum itself. Um, the JPS commentary adds to our understanding of the topic of the penalty slash remedy section here in my commentary. The JPS renders or reads. Um, Quote, the key word in chapter 11 is tamay, an adjective meaning impure, and the chapter concerns itself with the prevention of impurity and with its elimination once contracted. No ritual of purification involving water, oil, or blood are prescribed for cleansing a person of impurity that resulted from eating forbidden foods per se. Nevertheless, the physical contact necessarily involved in eating forbidden foods required a sacrifice required sacrificing a sin offering according to the law of uh, chapter 5 verse 2 and the footnote shows that this um, quote 
was taken from Baruch A. Levine, the JPS Torah Commentary to Leviticus, Jewish Publication Society, 1989, page 64. So you see what they said there? There's really no um, purification ritual per se for eating forbidden food. So in one sense, some people might say, well, what's the big deal? So I'm unclean. So I ate some pork. Big deal. Get over it. Doesn't mean I lose my salvation. Well, some of the language that I used there a moment ago in that example is true. Um, eating pork won't um, send you to hell. Um, but what we're talking about is a general disregard for the commands of God, and that will send you to hell um, if you turn your heart away from God's words and his ways and your heart grows cold and you eventually turn away from God himself, that will send you to hell. Yes, God has every right to um, condemn you and punish you based on your um, attitude towards him and his commandments. But what we're talking about is that when the Torah was, uh, when the temple was standing, when the tabernacle was in use and the people found themselves in a state of tuma, a state of, um, of unclean, um, ritually unclean or otherwise, then the Torah did give prescriptions for resolving the conflict that it placed on the community as well as the burden that it placed on the sanctum itself. And that's what we just discussed there. Thus, the topic of Tameh and Tahor are complicated matters when viewed from the Western mind. What is more, these topics lose much of their force, much of the force of their meaning. Remember I talked about earlier on that these two Hebrew words, Tameh and Tahor, are very difficult to explain render back into a receptor language? Well, they also lose much of the force of their meaning in the absence of a holy tabernacle, a temple, or a closed community like ancient Israel of the Tanakh period. Our commentary is drawing to a close, and so let me just uh, uh, introduce this last section entitled Closing. It's very short. I won't belabor the point. Hashem commands that His true worshipers establish a distinction between what is holy and what is common. To be sure, you could say that this is the language of the priests, right? Their job was to tell the people the differences between holy, unholy, clean, unclean, light, darkness, death, life, etc., etc. And because we are now a kingdom of priests in Messiah's uh, uh, atonement, in His blood, in His death, burial, resurrection, we have now inherited this job, this function, from the priests. And it is our job to um, make this distinction as well. Hashem's treatment, and subsequently our treatment, of food and non-food serve to accomplish this distinction very nicely. Wouldn't you agree? And with that, the commentary comes to a close. Thank you for sticking it out. It's been a long, tough study. Um, I put a lot of work into it, and I apologize for getting it out to you, the students, late. Please forgive me. But in the end, I think it's a valuable resource that we all can benefit from, uh, myself included. To be sure, this is not the end of the commentary. And I have a commentary on the web called um, What is Food? That's even longer than this, where I talk about the question of milk and meat, um, an issue that comes up within rabbinic circles but is not as, as well um, discussed and understood within Christian circles. Should the follower of Yeshua... Um, the, the Jewish person, the Hebraically minded person, should he abstain from the consumption of milk and meat in the same setting? That's a discussion that I did not even undertake in this commentary. Why? Because the passages in question do not find themselves in this chapter. Rather, they show up 
twice in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy chapter 16. So I'll deal with those in those passages uh, when the parashot falls and lands on that chapter. As well, I do deal with it in the lengthier commentary entitled um, What is Food? And just as a side note, that commentary, What is Food, is basically a replication of the commentary that we just heard. For the most part, probably 80% of what we just heard uh, in this commentary to Parashat Shmini is also repeated in the commentary, What is Food? So if you go read it, be aware that you're just going to be rereading re much of the identical data, with the exception of the section that deals with uh, the milk and meat issue. Okay. With that, let's um, recite the closing blessing of the Torah. It is as follows. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You've given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Love you all. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at Hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at Hotmail.com. Or visit our website at GraftedIn.com. That's GraftedIn.com.